Close Source is brought to you by the following sponsors. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnicwear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. And Shift Clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple, hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that has never been a fan of cucumber melon, but is totally fine with anything remotely coconut scented. I'm your host, Amanda. So I'm literally recording this the day after the election. I wasn't sure if I would be in the mood to release it. And, you know, if I'd want to mention anything about the election, there's so much going on in my head and has been going on in my head all week. But let's be honest here. Yes, this is a podcast about fashion. But it's also about the environment. It's also about workers' rights. It's also about wealth disparity. This fashion podcast is also a political podcast. As I record this, I have no idea what's going to happen. And the anxiety is killing me. Like, that's an understatement. All I want to do is go buy a cake mix, make the cake, eat the whole cake, feel sorry for myself. But so many of you reached out yesterday saying that you couldn't wait for today's mini-sode. So I knew I had to finish it. I mean, honestly, you listeners, you're my boss and I don't want my boss like on my ass. I want to do a good job. And you know what else? We all need to think about something else while we patiently, very patiently wait for the votes to be counted. If you already follow my personal account on Instagram, which is crystal underscore visions, if you want to check it out, the name comes from Stevie Nicks' solo greatest hits album. Check that out too. (laughs) Anyway, if you already follow my personal account, then what I'm about to say isn't going to be completely new to you. No matter what happens with the election, our work is not done. I cannot say that enough. There is so much to untangle, and no U.S. president can fix that. We all have to do the work because there's a problem in our society as a whole. We have to reduce our consumption, break up with fast fashion, buy less plastic, and actually recycle properly. Oh, you know what else we should do? Stop littering. We need to all unpack our privilege and protect and support those with less privilege. It's our job to care about other people, which brings me to the next thing we all need to do. We need to wear a mask and we need to stay home. We need to look up the definitions of compassion and empathy and let it shape our decisions and our actions. And of course, we need to not give our money to assholes. That's just the beginning of my to-do list. 
I would love to hear what is on your list. You can DM me on Instagram, send an email to at closehorsepodcast.com or call the Close Horse Hotline, which is 717-925-7417. Okay, now it's time to thank our new Patreon supporters. First off, if you recall in the last episode, I told you that I was incredibly fearful of mispronouncing the last name of Michelle of Jeans Vintage. Well, she DM'd me on the gram and told me that it's very easy to remember because it's beer hour. I can only assume that Michelle Beer Hour is always a popular happy hour date because that last name guarantees a good time. So thank you so much, Michelle, for supporting Close Horse. Next, I'm totally going to blow this. I think it's Catelyn Gagnier or Gagnier. That sounds pretty fancy to me. Or it could be Caitlin. I'm totally blowing this one. So please message me if I totally messed up your name because I will give you another shout out. This is very serious to me because while my last name is McCarty with no H, I'm frequently called McCarthy, even by people who have known me for a long time. And it sucks. So getting your name right is very important to me. Anyway, Catelyn, Caitlin, thank you so much for your support. It's great to have you as a listener and a patron. If you, yes you, want to support me and Close Horse, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast. Your support will allow me to keep doing this. So I'm going to be vulnerable with you for a minute. This week, I was finally rejected for a job that, to be fair, I wasn't super stoked on, but I'm also not super stoked on worrying every day about my future, so I pursued it through multiple just like excruciating interviews. And ultimately, I was turned down because, are you ready for this? They just couldn't understand why I would want to leave fashion. And while I wanted to say, hey, listen, I have a whole podcast, like hours and hours of me explaining why I don't want to work in fashion, but (laughs) this wasn't the political fashion podcast crowd. (laughs) So they thought I would go back to fashion when the pandemic ends. I mean, honestly, even if I wanted to go back to fashion after this, or at least the fashion world as it exists right now, I couldn't because... As I mentioned, I've got hours and hours and hours and hours of me raging against the machine out there for anyone to listen to. So effectively, my career as a buyer is over. And that's sad and it's scary. But I want Clothes Horse to be my career. It's the first time I've been excited and satisfied about my work. Thank you to all of you who have supported Clothes Horse and by extension me so far. Whether it's through Patreon, sharing our content on Instagram, posting a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or just reaching out with questions and encouragement. That's what keeps me going. Okay, should we get into today's mini-sode? Because I know you're excited about it. (laughs) In ninth grade, my mom separated from her fourth husband. Yes, I said fourth. That's not what this story is about. (laughs) But Rather than taking my brother and I with her, because our fathers were her second and first husbands, respectively, she left us with our stepfather and moved about 30 miles away to another town. To say it was terrible would be an understatement. I mean, my like 
14-year-old brain was just in flames. Our stepfather was a fine, nice guy, but he was struggling with my mom's departure, so it was up to me to step up to do the grocery shopping, cook the meals, pack the lunches, do the laundry. I was even balancing the checkbook. Like, if you need a lesson on balancing your checkbook, which is such an old-timey idea, (laughs) holler at me. I'll show you how. (laughs) On weekends here and there, my brother and I would have to go visit my mom and her new weird boyfriend, and it was so miserable. Like we were not allowed to talk about our feelings and we had to pretend everything was fine. My mom's new boyfriend, who was super weird, (laughs) insisted that my brother and I sleep on a bed with a plastic mattress cover in case one of us wet the bed because he literally knew nothing about children. So he didn't even know that 10 and 14 year olds don't usually wet the bed in most situations, right? It It was terrible. And I, I still, I get like a weird, uh, like flashbacky, cringy, chills feeling when I think about the sound of rolling over in a bed with a plastic mattress. Like, I guess it's like a phobia for me now. The highlight of any of these miserable trips, which it was not, to be fair, too hard to be a highlight of these terrible trips, was going to the Park City Mall, which, by the way, is about a 20-minute drive from my new house. It had all the best stores to my teenage mind, like merry-go-round and a huge record store with lots of import CDs. And there was this new store I'd never seen before. It sold all kinds of lotions and soaps, all in like minimalist packaging. Everything was green and ivory. Even though it was buried within a mall, it felt as if it was flooded with sunlight. (laughs) Genius, right? The fixturing was all wood and the soaps were displayed in these like big straw baskets. Signs on the wall told me that the store was, quote, dedicated to preserving the earth. Its brochure, which was printed on recycled paper, very ahead of its time, said, quote, our packaging is earth friendly. And the vanilla body lotion I bought that day said it was made of natural ingredients. I also bought a recycled plastic toothbrush with boar hair bristles. So, What was this magical eco-mecca of lotions and aromatherapy oils? Why it was Bath and Body Works. I want you to put a pin in my description of the store, the green decor, the earth-friendly vibes, because that's going to be important in a couple minutes. So keep that in mind. If you're not following Clothes Horse on Instagram yet, then you are missing out because last week I gave everyone the chance to vote on the topic for the next mini-sode and by a huge landslide. Bath and Body Works won. So welcome to today's super perfumey, super cozy mini-sode. The Wikipedia page for Bath and Body Works is almost comically short, and it's bereft of almost all of the really important information. Either it's being super carefully monitored by a corporate social media team, or no one cares enough to flesh it out. So Bath & Body Works, which the fans call BBW, and now so will we, was founded in 1990 in New Albany, Ohio, home of Abercrombie & Fitch. The first store opened in Cambridge, Massachusetts, though the company prefers to play up its heritage as like, quote, straight from the heartland. When BBW burst on the scene, it seems like it really may have been a small town lotion store that sort of caught fire and spread across the country. It seemed very genuine. But actually, 
it was founded by L Brands, which at the time was known as Limited Brands. L Brands was and is a massive company based in Columbus, Ohio. It was founded by Les Wexner. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because he was very good friends with Jeffrey Epstein. In fact, he was the primary client of Epstein. And in 1987, Epstein officially became his financial manager. In 1989, Wexner bought a very expensive historical house in New York City and signed it over to Epstein. Over the years, their involvement grew, and in the early aughts, Wexner tried to publicly cut ties with Epstein after he was charged in Florida with, quote, this is gross, multiple counts of molestation and unlawful sexual activity with a minor. Wexner also stated that Epstein had misappropriated quite a bit of money from the Wexner Foundation. That is the very short version of a very long and complicated story, and I recommend you check out the podcast, The Mysterious Mr. Epstein, which fully lays out how deeply this goes. And it's fascinating while also disgusting and disturbing. So L Brands is a huge fucking company. And in the early 90s, when it decided to launch BBW, it was like retail royalty. This was the heyday of the limited, RIP, and Express, which is still around today, but in a much smaller way. It's no longer completely owned by L Brands. In fact, in 2007, L Brands sold off 75% of its stake in Express to a private equity company called Golden Gate Capital Partners. But in 1990, this was when the Limited and Express were practically printing their own money. I specifically remember that Express was selling this boat neck, wide rib top, sort of boxy, sort of tunicky, and it was worn by any girl with any social capital at my school. I did not have one, and I declined my grandma's offer to buy me the knockoff Kmart version a few years later. This was unfortunate because Express was pretty much the coolest place any teen girl in Central PA could shop at the time. But L Brands was so much more than the Limited and Express, and that says a lot because these brands were so major at that time, but they also acquired Lane Bryant in 1982. That same year, they also bought Victoria's Secret. Then they bought Lerner New York, which would later become New York and Company in 1985. They bought Abercrombie and Fitch in 1988, and who could forget Structure, the Men's Express, and Limited Two, the Express for Tweens. L Brands owned a lot of other chains and stores too, but these were the real heavy hitters. When you look at this list, you start to realize that L Brands was kind of running half the mall by 1990, but it was all clothing, which had its limitations in terms of market growth. So the company was itching for an expansion. One of the things that I cannot emphasize enough about the retail and fashion industry is that you're always pushing for growth. It's not okay to do the same sales that you did last year. It's not even okay to do slightly more sales than the previous year. You have to be growing a lot year over year over year. And this line of thinking is what's fueling the overproduction and extreme waste of clothing here now in 2020. But it's been going on for decades. In 1990, 
Americans bought their soaps, shampoos, and other grooming products at like grocery stores, drug stores, big mass market retailers like Kmart. And if you were fancy, maybe you bought some of the stuff at the beauty counters and department stores. There were no standalone stores that just sold personal care products. In fact, it would seem like a crazy idea to run a store off of just soaps and lotions because think about it here, the low retail price of these items would mean you would have to sell a ton of units in order to pay the rents, like a ton. It would take eight to 10 bottles of lotion to make the same amount of money as selling one shirt. So it just didn't seem like a very promising model. It definitely felt risky because you'd have to have a lot of customers coming into the store all the time and buying many units of items. So leaving with a bag of like five, 10 items every time. Keep that in mind as we stroll along this Bath and Body Works road. (laughs) In the late 80s, Express sold its own line of Bath and Body products. And it was so successful that L Brands decided to throw caution to the wind and just build an entirely new retail concept around it. The first stores these Bath and Body Works stores, were actually attached to Express stores so you could pass freely from one to the other. That's how I remember my first BBW experience. And I have to say, it's a pretty genius way to feed your already existing customers to a new brand by just literally funneling them through a doorway to buy more stuff from you. So BBW was actually just an extension of Express and it was owned by a huge corporation. Well, that's not a very good story, right? (laughs) you know, for customers, like where's the emotional connection, right? People love a story. So L Brands came up with another idea. Why not create a fake founder named Kate? So Kate was completely fictional. She wasn't even inspired by an actual person, just completely made up, but she was supposed to embody everything that the brand stood for. While most customers had never heard of her, she was a key component of customer service training. Employees were expected to see their store as Kate's house and treat customers as if they were honored guests at this house. And by the way, there isn't much info about this totally fake person on the internet anywhere, but I found the most details on a Tumblr called From the Heartland, Vintage Bath and Body Works, which is a stroll down memory lane for anyone who's ever gone through a BBW period, and that's most of you, I'm sure. It's curated by a former BBW employee, and here's her version of Kate's backstory as it was told to her by her manager. Kate grew up on a farm in the Midwest and loved to make her own beauty products using the natural ingredients she found around the farm. She went to college and majored in biology so she could learn more about the beneficial properties of these natural ingredients. When she graduated, she decided to open her own store to sell her homemade natural beauty products. Thus, Bath and Body Works was born. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm laughing. This is so silly, right? Also, I think if you went to college to create your own line of natural beauty products, you might study chemistry instead. I'm just putting that out there. This super fictional but so important Kate was even mentioned in the company's 1997 annual report by Les Wexner. Their brand has a conscience, a conscience they call Kate, the fictional company founder. Everyone in the business knows her values and what's important to her. 
They talk in terms of a product's, quote, essential Kateness. Would Kate do it? No? Okay, don't. It's that easy. And this is me, Amanda, speaking again. I got to hand it to the team. Looking at business decisions through that lens is super smart, and it's definitely ahead of its time. This idea of emotional marketing, that brands could be your friend, really became popular in the late 90s. Brands later shifted to this idea of the aspirational customer and what she would want to buy and see, but I like the idea of using a founder's ethos as a guiding light, even if it's a totally made-up person. Okay, remember earlier when I told you to put a pin in that green, earth-friendly vibe of the original Bath & Body Works? Well, now we're going to talk about that. But first, we need to talk about Anita Roddick and the body shop. Anita Roddick was a businesswoman, a humanitarian, and an environmental activist. And she was also the founder of the body shop. She opened the first body shop in 1976 in Brighton, in the UK, with the goal of earning an income for herself and her two daughters while her husband was away in South America. She wanted to provide quality skincare products in refillable containers and sample sizes, all marketed with truth rather than hype. I mean, this is everything. Can we talk about what a groundbreaking concept this was and still kind of is? And it was 1976. She opened a second store within six months, and by 1991, she had 700 stores across the UK. She pioneered the idea of fair trade between countries and shifting away from animal testing for cosmetics. While Bath & Body Works was operating under the ethics and taste of a fictional person, the body shop was all Anita Roddick's vision, with the marching orders, quote, profits with principles, which I love, of course. In fact, Roddick is considered the pioneer of conscious consumerism. The driving directive behind the brand was about not just making customers look good, but make them feel good about their purchases. Now, was there some greenwashing at play here? I mean, I'm sure. After all, how much recycling was actually happening? How safe and natural were the ingredients? And where were the body shop's products being made? Were the workers paid a living wage? All of these questions are left unanswered, right? Under today's microscope, the body shop might not hold up, but for that time, this was a wildly groundbreaking brand. Like, wildly. Side note, just want to say, as a college student, I was obsessed with the body shop's Morello Cherry Lip Balm, and I still, ugh, I want that to come back so badly. <laughs> anyway, back to Anita Roddick. Her book, Body and Soul, was published in 1991, and it began with, this is an amazing quote, I hate the beauty business. It lies. It cheats. It exploits women. I mean, bra fucking oh. Like, yes. This was 1991. This was almost 30 years ago. This is the rallying cry that some of us are starting to adopt now. I mean, what a groundbreaker. The Body Shop, besides being very focused on environmental impact, also had a green and ivory decor. The packaging was minimal, and the products promised all-natural ingredients. So Roddick already had all these Body Shop stores in the UK, so she was ready to begin to expand the Body Shop into the United States. 
when she caught wind of Bath and Body Works. Not only had BBW copied the entire model and aesthetic of the body shop, they had even copied its signature leaf logo. She filed suit against L Brands almost immediately, and guess what? L Brands settled almost immediately. Now, I've looked and looked and looked, but I cannot find an actual dollar amount of the settlement, and L Brands never publicly commented on the case. Furthermore, this whole story is 100% missing from the BBW Wikipedia page, but I was able to find some information via the New York Times archives. The most important part of the lawsuit was that BBW basically had to change its entire branding. The stores could no longer be green, the primary message could no longer be eco-focused, and the labels had to change ASAP. So BBW switched to the rustic farm vibes concept that still lingers somewhat today. The logo became a sunburst, which is iconic now. Stores were made to look like country marketplaces with red gingham and wooden barrels and products that reflected this country theme. And even the sales associates wore gingham aprons. I mean, it was all about the country. (laughs) This branding direction became known as the Heartland Era, and it lasted until about 2002. Okay, so there's no proof that L Brands had been to a body shop and decided to steal the concept. But then again, it was just too similar for anything else to have happened. And the fact that they had settled so fast, I mean, it does seem a little suspicious, right? Furthermore, if you've been listening for a while, then you know by now that this whole industry is about stealing ideas. So it only makes sense to assume that that's exactly what happened there. Also, I would be remiss if I did not tell you that there has always been whispers that Roddick herself stole the concept of the body shop, including the name, from a store in California. And while there's no proof of that, in 1987, Roddick did offer $3.5 million to the owners of the original body shop, Peggy Short and Jane Saunders. And basically that $3.5 million would buy the exclusive rights to the business's name. So just the name. They accepted it, and in 1992, they changed their business's name to Body Time. Buying the name, to me, is not an indication of stealing the idea. When you have a brand, you want to protect your name, and it can be confusing for customers to find another shop by the same name. So I'm not sure what to say there. This is another thing where there's just like not that much information out there that I could find. So who knows? But this leads me to the next thing. So before we move on with the Bath & Body Works brand, I would like to mention another brand that was admittedly very much copying the body shop model, and that is Origins, which is a division of Estee Lauder. You see, smart business people were beginning to realize that this idea of natural cosmetics with a conscience was a growing trend. Alan Modis, a cosmetics industry consultant, called the trend, quote, a fad that's gone mainstream. Modest said that the success of the body shop was transforming what had been just a cottage industry of little independent makers and stores into a major growth segment within the $20 billion cosmetics industry. Once again, we're talking about like the late 80s, early 90s here, and this is still a trend that's growing. Origins was launched as a division of Estee Lauder by Leonard Lauder, one of the heirs to the Lauder brand and fortune, in 1990. 
the same year as Bath and Body Works. And Lauder would admit that, yes, the concept and give back component of Origins was definitely heavily, heavily, quote, inspired by the body shop. Somehow the body shop never went after Origins, whose branding was essentially a copy of the body shop. And I mean, at least as much of a copy as Bath and Body Works was. And I wonder why. Maybe because Anita Roddick didn't want to take on the muscle of Estee Lauder. That's the only reason I can imagine. Today, Origins is still around and has about 1,500 stores globally. And the branding remains nature-focused and still not that much of a stretch in terms of branding from the body shop as it even exists now. Okay, back to Bath & Body Works. In 1991, so a year after they opened, after they've settled this case, or, in, or at least are in the process of settling this case, L Brands brought in Beth Pritchard to lead Bath & Body Works. Unlike everybody else in leadership roles at L Brands, Pritchard did not have a background in retail. And that's a really big deal, coming from such a huge retail, clothing, merchandising conglomerate, Right. Instead, she came from marketing at Johnson Wax, which makes cleaning products. Here's something interesting about Beth Pritchard. For the last six of her 18 years at SC Johnson & Son, Johnson Wax, she was vice president for insect control, where her marketing genius and product development skills expanded Raid's market share. Yes, Raid, the bug spray. She preferred to run Bath & Body Works like a consumer products company rather than a retail fashion company with heavy emphasis on packaging and test marketing, which if you're growing the business at Raid for bug spray, you know a lot about this. You totally understand the importance of packaging and test marketing. This is what she said. We're a brand that happens to have stores that distribute our product. Basically, she's saying, hey, listen, We have stores. We're not a store company. We're a product company. And she herself boasted about testing every product herself. She even worked in the stores. She got her teenage daughter and her friends in on trying the new stuff. And she was serious about product and understanding the customer's relationship with it. 30% of Bath & Body Works products each month were brand new stuff. Basically, and this this is what she had to say about that. Because you don't desperately need our products, we must entertain you. It's a Disney mentality. This level of constant newness was unheard of across the retail industry at that point. Because remember, this was pre-fast fashion. But yes, to a certain extent, she was sort of pioneering this concept of fast fashion and constant newness. At the same time, Pritchard also recognized that customers were beginning to build attachments to certain fragrances like cucumber melon. So those had to stick around. It was a two-prong approach that we see today in retail a lot more commonly. Most sales for a brand coming from these evergreen, eternal bestsellers that maybe they just update the color here and there, with a smaller portion of sales coming from the new products that keep customers engaged. And new product launches, while not necessarily driving that much sales volume, allow buyers to test new ideas and trends and kind of find what the new evergreen styles are going to be. When Pritchard took over Bath & Body Works in 1991, it had just 95 stores with sales of $20 million. $20 million is a lot of money, but small. Wait till you see how big it's going to get. 
by 1996, she had expanded the chain to 750 stores at sales that were about $750 million per year. Her goal was to make Bath & Body Works, quote, the McDonald's of toiletries. And not surprising to me, Bath & Body Works was the most profitable aspect of L Brands as a whole. In 1996, BBW was only 9% of total L Brands sales because, remember, they were selling a much less expensive product than, say, Express. So they were 9% of the total sales, but they were 29% of total L brand profits because there is so much margin in cosmetics and personal care products. In most cases, the packaging is significantly more expensive than the product inside. That's a whole other episode. And by the way, if you're listening and you or a friend work in the beauty industry and are willing to be interviewed for the show, please reach out. This is an episode I have been dying to do. Bath & Body Works revolutionized the way we washed and cared for ourselves in the 90s. They made the shower poof or puff and shower gel a mainstay in all parts of the United States. They introduced us to the concept of a body lotion versus a hand lotion versus a post-shower spray, and you would need all three. Before that, everyone was just using bar soap and a washcloth. At my house... It was always ivory soap or maybe Dove if my mom's skin was feeling dry. But by 1995, it was all about the shower gel and we each had our own shower puff, which can we just talk about shower puffs for a second? Shower puffs are plastic. And even if they happen to be made of recycled plastic, they're still going to be chilling in the landfill for centuries. And... They're actually breeding grounds for nasty bacteria that grow and multiply in just one night. Basically, your dead skin cells get trapped in the netting, the shower is all warm and humid, and boom, lots of crazy bacteria and mold have like their dream home. In fact, it's estimated that 98% of dermatologists would recommend you never use a shower puff. Let's just keep that in mind. If you insist on using one and I get it. They feel good. They get all foamy. It's nice. I recommend one made of burlap or some other textured washable fabric or better yet, try a loofah or a washcloth. Seriously, I'm a huge fan of an incredibly rough washcloth and I like to make them even crunchier by hanging them outside to dry after it's been through the washing machine. Like then it really exfoliates you and it's not plastic and you can wash it. Okay, that's enough shower puff talk. So to recap, Bath and Body Works was on fire in the 90s, but in 2001, sales began to decline a bit. So a rebrand was in order. The gingham aprons and the barrels were cast aside, although employees were allowed to buy them, and they did. And thus, the modern apothecary era was born. Stores became whiter and brighter, inspired by old-timey pharmacies, Emphasis was placed on products with more holistic ingredients that might provide health benefits. That included expanding their aromatherapy line, bringing in True Blue Spa, and a pure simplicity skincare line. This era must not have been that great, though, because a new strategy was initiated just a few years later in 2005, after Beth Pritchard left the company. For the next few years, the brand focused on bringing in higher-end brands like Tucci Dolce and Goldie. They also launched partnerships with Harry Slatkin, Frederick Fakai, and Patricia Wexler. 
that really wasn't that successful either. So from 2007 to 2011, the brand decided to focus on bringing in younger customers. And I will say this might've been smart because it seems like those customers stuck around. So the focus turned to fun, splashy fragrances and packaging, more color, more trendiness, definitely designed to give Victoria's Secret's wildly successful line of body sprays and glittery lotions a run for its money. Because at that point, and I'm sure you all have personal experience with this, Victoria's Secret beauty and body lines were killing it, like all caps, killing it with teens and young women. But the shift into younger, trendier fragrances and products at Bath and Body Works was alienating the longtime Bath and Body Works customer that had been shopping there since the 90s. So it was a weird time. It's like they'd pushed too hard in one direction. In 2011, the brand gradually began to return, at least slightly, to its heartland roots, which was clearly the golden era of Bath and Body Works. At least in 2011, you would look back and think of that as the golden era, but perhaps the golden era, spoiler, was just beginning. <laughs> Blue Gingham crept back into the stores and into packaging. The white barn candle line from the late 90s was reintroduced and even rolled out into its own stores. And the fresh picked collection seemed right in line with the 90s products. So a few weeks ago, Kim, who co-hosts the department with me, sent me an article about Bath and Body Works mega fans. And I was shocked because I assumed that BBW was probably struggling like the rest of the retail industry. But in fact, it's the crown jewel of the L brand's portfolio. And it's wildly more successful than Victoria's Secret, which used to be the darling of L brands. And actually, Victoria's Secret is struggling really, really hard right now. Bath & Body Works recently celebrated becoming a $5 billion brand, meaning $5 billion in sales in a year, all while delivering 40 consecutive quarters, that's 10 years, of positive sales since 2009. So what does that mean? It means that every year since 2009, BBW has made more money than the previous year. And that's like the holy grail of retail because most other brands could never achieve 10 years of continuous growth. It's the goal that they promise shareholders and investors, but it rarely happens. And this is especially surprising when you consider that Bath & Body Works has been around almost 30 years, making it what we would call a, quote, mature business. You would have expected it to have plateaued a long time ago. There are nearly 2,000 locations worldwide, 1,700 of which are in North America. And Bath & Body Works beats out Sephora in terms of sales volume. And they're second only to Ulta, which, by the way, carries body shop products. I don't know. I just had to put that in there. <laughs> so how is Bath & Body Works just continuously killing it? Well, first off, they don't do advertising. Have you ever noticed that? no ads anywhere to be found. Instead, they focus on their existing customers, getting them back into the store as much as possible. They use their database of customers in, in a variety of ways, from sending specialized emails based on shopping history to mailing out actual coupons and circulars. And there's constantly some sort of buy more, save more promo going on, basically getting the customer to buy more units of what's available. Their prices are just affordable enough, but not too cheap to devalue the product. 
And you can't find their line anywhere but at their stores or on their website. And that's super important. They own everything they sell and you have to see them to get it. Do you want to hear a crazy fact? In 2017, Bath and Body Works sold enough three wick candles to stretch from Miami to Vancouver, BC, if laid side by side. The Bath and Body Works fans are loyal. And the company achieves a balance of just enough product to keep people coming back to try new things while also keeping around those proven bestsellers. And it's kind of genius, actually, because they also create this feeling of scarcity, like things will come and go. So if you find a fragrance that you like, you better stock up, especially on the seasonal sense. It's a call to action to customers to not hesitate about buying and to buy multiples. This model is also used by Kylie Jenner's makeup line and, you know, Supreme. It's basically like buy now so you don't regret it later. Bath and Body Works also changes their packaging regularly. So this creates another element of collectability and increased perceived value. Like Waikiki Beach Coconut has been around for a bit, but the packaging is changed yearly, making it feel even more special. I want you to think about what I'm about to say for a moment because this is a really big deal. Bath and Body Works has successfully transformed basic, typically consumable items like lotion, candles, and hand sanitizer into collectible treasures that are way more valuable than their retail prices. Also, different stores get different products. So if you're a huge fan, you want to check out several stores and the website pretty regularly. This reminds me of the Beanie Babies craze. (laughs) At one point, McDonald's was including special Beanie Babies and Happy Meals, so collectors were driving from restaurant to restaurant to obtain different ones, like obsessively. Bath and Body Works uses this strategy every single day to keep customers engaged. It's just occurring to me that this is the second time in this episode where Bath and Body Works has been compared to McDonald's. That says something to me because no matter what your stance on fast food is, you have to admit that McDonald's can sometimes be a source of like comfort food and familiarity on a really bad day or on a long, exhausting road trip. Bath and Body Works brings that same level of comfort and familiarity to so many of its fans, while also keeping fans super excited by all this like new packaging and new products. With almost 30 years in business, they have a steady stream of loyal customers who have certain BBW fragrances baked into their memories. People who remember wearing sweet pea to their prom or sharing cucumber melon with their best friends after gym class or that raspberry body spray that we all used in junior high. I was a huge fan of their sort of like minty stress relief line and I almost thought about driving out to the nearest location to buy something from that line to get myself in the mood for this episode. I didn't, but I'm still thinking about it. These fragrances, which are just as iconic as CK1 and Clinique Happy, they create an emotional response for the fans, just like any other department store perfume of that era. So they have to have them around for those times when a little nostalgia is the best medicine. One of the words that Bath & Body Works fans throw out the most when they talk about their feelings toward the brand is comfort. We're reaching a point where generations of women have been living their lives surrounded by the most iconic Bath and Body Works fragrances. Their familiarity is comfortable, 
which I get now more than ever with things being super dark and difficult. And I connect to this fragrance as memories idea. If you're a longtime listener or you know me IRL, then you know that my boyfriend died a few months before our daughter was born. He always wore this black coconut oil from the health food store. I mean, hey, listen, we were both kind of crunchy and I still am. But this, <laughs> this very specific fragrance puts me in this place like nothing else can. Like I still wear that same brand of black coconut oil when I'm having a tough time or my anxiety is really high, which means I've been blazing through it during the pandemic. I'm sure you have scents in your own life that give you that same feeling. Maybe they're from Bath and Body Works, maybe they're not. There's a thriving community of BBW fans sharing and trading the more vintage and iconic fragrances on eBay and Facebook. Some fans are reselling retired products on Mercari and Amazon. Yes, this does allow collectors to bring in some income, but it also creates a community for fans. And this sense of community is more valuable than ever during this pandemic that keeps us all apart. And if you don't believe me about the size and passion of this community of fans, please check out hashtag Bath and Body Works or hashtag BABW or hashtag BBW or even, this one's a little bit more vague, hashtag Candle Community. I mean, the fan community is enormous. And like this kind of loyal customer is hashtag goals for any other retailer. I cannot emphasize that enough. It would seem that Bath and Body Works has exponentially more fans than say Chanel. And that brings me to another thing I've been thinking about a lot in terms of Bath and Body Works and every other brand or idea out there. It's easy to dismiss BBW and its product as tacky or cheesy or trashy, right? Because it's so omnipresent. The store is so perfumey. You can't help but smell it when you walk by. So many of you have reached out to tell me that. No matter what our relationship with this brand is, we all have so many common stories and feelings about it. And the fact that you can smell it when you walk by is both fascinating and troubling to a lot of us. I've also heard that employees can't even smell the smell anymore after they work there for a while. Is that a red flag? I'm not sure. <laughs> The smell, the fragrances, the products at Bath & Body Works, it's not for everyone, right? You know, certain aspects of BBW and its branding seem dated or old-timey to me, but that's only if you're into something else. Because loving or hating Bath & Body Works is a matter of personal preference. Some of us love some cashmere glow or pumpkin spice or whatever, and some of us don't. I, I personally like an earthy, smoky kind of fragrance, maybe some coconut. I'm a huge fan of my friend Raina's line, Botica Botanica, which is very Pacific Northwest and very nature-inspired, so shout out to Raina. But plenty of people must love floral or powdery scents because there's a ton of those on the market too. I think we tend to throw a word that I kind of hate into the equation when we talk about fragrances and clothes and makeup and music and cars and books and just about everything. And that word is taste. There is this idea that there is good taste and bad taste. And the parameters around what makes something good taste versus bad taste are unclear. But it seems generally that more expensive things or more rare things are good taste 
and mass inexpensive things are bad taste. But when we talk about good taste versus bad taste, we're really speaking about classism. Because once again, most things deemed bad taste are inexpensive. It generates this idea of guilty pleasures, which I fucking hate. (laughs) This idea that you can enjoy some of these bad things, but only with a lot of guilt. And otherwise, everything in your life must be deemed good taste, or then it's not a guilty pleasure and you just have bad taste. Like, it's okay to like a few, quote, bad things, but don't go too far with it. And like I said, be sure to feel guilty or embarrassed about it. In fashion, one of the qualifications for getting a job is your, quote, taste level. If you come into the interview with one wrong accessory, the wrong lipstick color, maybe you smell a little bit like cucumber melon, well, that's a ding against your taste level. So you might not get the job. I was talking with my friend Sherry last week about how this idea of taste level and hiring based on taste level is also essentially hiring on the basis of class and therefore only letting wealthier people, people from generational wealth into your company. And it's a trend that we've seen growing and growing within the industry that if you come from a middle or lower class background, there's a much lower ceiling on your career path within that company. That's a whole other episode right there. (laughs) But what the fashion industry and everyone else who deems themselves a tastemaker is really saying when we declare Bath and Body Works as bad taste or pumpkin spice lattes as basic or ombre hair as trashy, we're saying that you seem poor or middle class at best. And what you should be doing is seeming rich or at least like a super hip member of the creative underclass. Those are the only poor people that are also allowed to have good taste. But no one aspires to shop at Bath & Body Works because it's accessible to everyone. So it's dismissed as lame and trashy. Listen, you might not like the fragrances offered at Bath & Body Works, and they definitely aren't my jam, but I also don't expect you to embrace my black coconut body oil from the health food store. And I won't be apologetic for it either. Just to spell it out, expensive doesn't always mean better. Affordable doesn't mean worse accessible doesn't mean trashy garbage. And if you're still not convinced, I have a great example of something that was once considered bad taste and is now being embraced by quote, tastemakers all over the world. And that's Crocs. Yes. Once the Bath and Body Works of shoes and now totally a cool and stylish thing to wear in quarantine. Crocs is a great example of how good taste versus bad taste literally means nothing. It's all about someone's personal whims and experiences. So I would ask you, why are some people's preferences more acceptable than others? And by the way, I hate the word tastemaker, even though that's been a part of my job description for years. (laughs) Why do we give more gravity and attention to some personal preferences over others? Once again, this all comes back to classism for our innate desire to be rich and popular. Because guess what? No one's hanging outside Walmart looking for new street style trends. And that's because we've all, all of us, have been convinced that people with less money can't have good taste or a strong sense of personal style. I say, fuck that. Do what makes you happy. If that means dousing yourself in cucumber melon and it makes you feel good, fucking do it. Now, that said, 
70% of the plastic packaging used in cosmetics and personal care products ends up in the landfill. And as you know, only about 10% of plastic is being recycled anyway. So I do have a beef with all the plastic bottles and packaging that Bath & Body Works is churning out into the world. I would love to see them pivot to offering refillable packaging and maybe glass bottles. Because you know what? Their customer would go for it. Because that's how connected to the brand they are. If Bath & Body Works told them, hey, we're all switching to reusable packaging, things are coming in glass bottles, the customer would be stoked and it would normalize the idea of reducing your consumption. Come on, Bath & Body Works, get on it. Next, now is the time to stop using shower gel and return to bar soap. It's so much less wasteful from a packaging viewpoint, and I just had to say that there. Let's leave behind the era of shower gel and shower puffs and switch to a bar of soap and a really nice textured washcloth, <laughs> like a crunchy one. I'm telling you guys, you haven't lived until you've washed with a crunchy washcloth. And lastly, Bath & Body Works products contain a lot of chemicals that are not good for us, including phthalates, which is a key component in fragrances mineral oil, which is made from petroleum products, and parabens, which disrupt hormonal function and have been linked to breast and ovarian cancer. Now that's a reason not to shop BBW or push them to change their ingredients. If you're a fan, use your dollar power here and get the other fans involved too. Make it better. Because I get it. You like it, right? Make it better. However, Etsy is also filled with all kinds of makers that are minimizing packaging and skipping bad ingredients, and some of the super smart Etsy sellers are following this Bath & Body Works strategy of fun, food, and seasonal-inspired scents. It's not all hemp and herbs. There's something out there for you. You need a gingerbread soap? They've got it. Pumpkin? It's out there. Overall, as a longtime fashion and retail professional, I have to say that I am in awe of what Bath & Body Works has created. This kind of emotional connection and longtime relationship with a customer, every fashion brand dreams of this. But fashion is fickle. What's in today is out tomorrow, and that includes brands and retailers. If you miss a trend, no one's coming back to your store for a while. And as I mentioned earlier, this fast fashion strategy of constantly launching more and more new product is supposed to keep you coming back multiple times a week. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But it continues to drive Bath & Body Works customers from store to store to store, week after week. And while fast fashion loses its value almost immediately, Bath & Body Works actually gains value in time. Once again, that's crazy because we tend to think of shower gel and candles as disposable consumable items. No matter what your feelings about winter candy apple or cashmere glow may be, you have to admit that Bath & Body Works is a pioneer and master in the area of building a long-term loyal relationship with its customers. And if you're listening and you're starting your own brand or you work in marketing, I would suggest you think a lot about how you can adapt the ways of Bath & Body Works into your own business model. Maybe not that crazy overconsumption part because like I read an article about a BBW fan who bought 55 candles in one day. That's not good. Please, please don't encourage that. But maybe think about how you can build that kind of relationship with your customers in a more sustainable way. 
the path is there, I promise you. And I would say that Lush is already doing it. Although I know people will go in there and buy like 20 bath bombs too. So no one needs that. There's got to be a middle ground there. So I bet you're wondering what's happening at Bath and Body Works in the era of COVID in a time that is just obliterating a lot of the biggest brands and retailers, including its own sister brands, Victoria's Secret, Abercrombie and Fitch. Well, in Q1, hand sanitizer and soap sales grew to 25% of the business. I totally had forgotten that Bath and Body Works sells hand sanitizer and in like a major way. So there was, you know, a need there to fill. And they already had some on hand. In the second quarter, soap and hand sanitizer are an even bigger part of the business as they've been able to bring in more and more inventory. They were kind of playing catch up for a while. Also, candles are selling like hotcakes because everyone's home all the time. The hashtag self-care movement is also bringing in a lot of Bath and Body Works fans. Like we're all here for the self-care, no matter what our particular brand of preferred self-care seems to be. And all of these factors, along with the longtime regular customers, has made Bath & Body Works the darling salvation of L Brands, like keeping it going. You know how at the end of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, they did the montage of updates and all the characters? Well, I want to do that with all the peripheral characters I mentioned in this episode. So Lane Bryant was sold off to Charming Shops in 1999. And its new sister brands are Fashion Bug and Catherine's. But then Charming Shops was acquired by Asana Group in 2012. And this year, 2020, Asana filed bankruptcy. It's expecting to close about 150 Lane Bryant stores. Abercrombie & Fitch is its own spinoff company from L Brands, and it's publicly traded. It's still closely linked to L Brands, though, but it's been in talks to sell itself off and on since 2017 with American Eagle Outfitters expressing interest. I'm not sure if it's going to happen, especially now with retail being so crazy. New York and Company was bought from L Brands by Bear Stearns in 2002, becoming a publicly traded company in 2004. It's rebranded in all kinds of ways to mix results over the years, and this year the company filed for bankruptcy. Limited 2 eventually spun off into its own company as well in 1999. In 2006, it was rebranded as Justice. There's so much drama involved in the Limited 2 story that it could be its own mini-sode, so I'm kind of keeping that in mind for the future because it's pretty crazy. Structure converted to Express Men's, and the name was licensed off for use in Sears. As you know, now Sears is basically closing too. Victoria's Secret is still around, and while it's a mess... That's another episode too, right there. <laughs> Anita Roddick, the pioneer behind The Body Shop, passed away in 2007. In the previous year, before that, The Body Shop agreed to a 652 million pounds takeover by L'Oreal. It was reported that the Roddicks made 130 million pounds from the sale. Major, major money. This was highly controversial because L'Oreal conducts animal testing, although L'Oreal stopped animal testing in 1989, but then the company had begun selling its products in China in 1997, where the law requires cosmetics to be tested on animals before sale to the public. 
other cosmetic brands have found themselves in the same boat. So this is not unique to L'Oreal. In 2017, L'Oreal sold the body shop to Natura. And in 2019, the body shop became a certified B Corps. So I think it's back on track to fulfilling Roddick's vision. However, there's also an MLM called Body Shop at Home that is operating in the US, UK, and Australia. As soon as I hear MLM, I'm sketched out for sure. If any of you have experiences with the Body Shop at Home, please drop me a line. I have so many questions. Thanks for listening to another episode of Clothes Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And you could consider subscribing, then you'll never miss an episode. And please share with a friend. That's how we change things by educating more and more people. Speaking of community, there are so many of you that I speak to kind of regularly via social media. And I was thinking that it would be awesome for all of you to get together and me. So I was thinking about starting a Clothes Horse Facebook group, but I'm open to other options too. Is there another platform that you would prefer? I know Facebook is busted. If you have some feelings or ideas here, drop me a line. I'm obsessed with the idea of building community and support for one another during this terrible time that keeps us away from one another. Thank you to everyone who has shared our content or recommended us on Instagram. It feels like the best thing ever every time it happens. It makes me so happy. It motivates me. I love knowing that you're listening, that you're engaged. So thank you so much. Do you have some feedback, an episode idea? Do you want to be a guest on Clothes Horse? Drop me a line at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com or DM via Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast. Also, if you have a question, hit me up because I love researching the answer. And don't forget, there's also the Clothes Horse hotline. The phone number is 717-925-7417. Give me a call. Even if you just want to say hi or tell me something random, I would love to hear your memories and feelings about Bath and Body Works because I know you've got some good stories there. If you can't get enough of podcasts, then check out my other show, The Department. I co-host it with my friend Kim. We talk about trends, taste, our obsessions, weird things that we think are funny. This week, we're sharing our tips for a better fall-winter quarantine. Are we experts? We like to think we are because we're both lifelong homebodies, so check it out. Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye!